Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Stats. I'm Damian Garde, recording from Stats Worldwide Headquarters in Boston. I'm Adam Feuerstein, also coming to you from Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from Stat San Francisco Bureau. It is Thursday, March 28th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Remember the pending mega deal that would unite Bristol, Myers Squibb, and Celgene? A pair of shareholder advisory firms are days away from issuing their opinions on whether the deal is a good idea. We'll explain what to watch for and why it matters. Next, we're going to talk about a really gut-wrenching story about what happens when babies die suddenly and without explanation. Our stat colleague Eric Budman joins us to discuss his reporting on how the ensuing investigations by medical bureaucrats can compound the pain of grieving parents. Digital health apps are shaking up healthcare. They're being used in a way that their developers never intended, as de facto suicide crisis hotlines. We'll talk about how digital health startups are grappling with the challenge of how best to help patients who disclose suicidal thoughts and behaviors on their platforms. And finally, we'll bring you another lightning round. That'll mean hot takes on the state of the IPO market three months into 2019, CRISPR lobbyists in Washington, and a new treatment recommendation from diabetes specialists on a fish oil-derived drug. But first, a word from our sponsor. Curious about CRISPR? Tune into CRISPR Cuts, Synthago's official podcast dedicated to the world of genome engineering. We hope to reach audiences that are enthusiastic to learn about CRISPR, regardless of their scientific expertise. So take a break and join us as we guide conversations with a CRISPR expert about this cutting edge technology. For full podcast episodes on CRISPR, visit synthago.com forward slash stat. That's S-Y-N-T-H-E-G-O dot com forward slash stat. It seems so long ago, guys, but back in January, Bristol-Myers Squibb told the world that it was going to acquire Celgene for $74 billion. You can be forgiven if you tuned out of the story then and there. But as of this very second, that deal hasn't actually closed. And the past few months have seen a war of words and PowerPoint presentations between Bristol and a group of investors who think that buying Celgene is a very bad idea. So all of this will come to a head on April 12th. That's when Bristol shareholders will get to vote on whether to approve the Celgene merger. But before then, the world is going to hear from a pair of little-known but super-influential firms that make their money whispering in shareholders' ears. And their opinions could swing Bristol's fate. That's right. So any day now, two companies called ISS and Glass-Lewis, which are the largest shareholder advisory firms in the world, will issue recommendations on how Bristol stockholders should vote. And history suggests that those recommendations are incredibly important. There's tons of research going back many years showing that investors are significantly more likely to vote in line with the recommendations of Glass-Lewis and ISS than to vote against them. So, Damien, you've looked into these shareholder advisory firms. Uh, how did they become so influential? And can't shareholders just sort of think for themselves here? You would think so. And, and what's interesting is that the rise of these companies coincides with the rise of mutual funds, which own just an insane amount of uh, available shares out there on the American stock market. And the thing about those mutual funds is that because they're so diversified, they don't employ the experts they would need to dig into every little proposal that a company might have. And also, they're largely passive when it comes to weighing in on things. And so that created the market opportunity for firms like ISS and Glass-Lewis, who would do that research for them and then whisper in their ear that, hey, this pay package is not so great, or hey, these board seats are solid, or these board nominees are solid, rather. 
So as we said at the top of the segment, uh, Damien, we know that Bristol-Myers Squibb is lobbying their shareholders to approve the deal. But there's also this group of investors who is sort of actively campaigning against the deal, trying, trying to persuade other investors to vote no. So how much should Bristol-Myers be worried about ISS and Glass-Lewis you know, and the recommendations that are going to be coming over this Celgene deal? So the data would suggest that they should be quite a bit worried. Um, Researchers have been digging into the influence of these advisors for years, and over and over when I was looking at the the research, they've concluded that their recommendations have a huge impact on how institutional investors vote. In fact, there are some investors out there who seem to vote straight ticket with advisors uh, regardless of, of what the recommendations might be. And there was one study that I think is maybe perhaps especially pertinent to Bristol-Myers from 2010, which found that when ISS sides with dissident shareholders, like the ones who are protesting the Celgene deal, the odds of those dissidents winning the eventual uh, shareholder election go up by as much as 30%. And so we've seen this played out uh, recently, like last year, for instance, Albertson's deal to buy Rite Aid for $24 billion fell apart after Glass-Lewis and ISS recommended against it. And uh, there was a case with Carl Icahn. He abandoned his efforts to block a merger between Cigna and Express Scripts after the two firms endorsed the deal. But ISS and Glass-Lewis are not all powerful, right? You know, surely there are shareholder proposals that pass or fail in spite of what these advisors say. That is very true. So ISS and Glass-Lewis have consistently advised shareholders to vote against management proposals at companies like Facebook and Snap, only to see stockholders go the other way. And there was a case a couple of years ago where Glass-Lewis came out very, very strongly against Tesla's proposal to buy SolarCity. That was when uh, Elon Musk wanted to acquire a company that was, I believe, run by his brother. But anyway, 85% of Tesla shareholders voted in favor of the deal. So that advice obviously didn't go very far. So, Damien, do we have any indication about kind of the way ISS and Glass-Lewis are going to go when it comes to the Bristol-Celgene deal? One of the major takeaways is that Acquisitions like this tend to get recommendations from the likes of ISS and Glass-Lewis, but there's a lot of nuance and a lot of caveats. I think the worry, if you were on Bristol's side, is that Bristol is proposing to pay a roughly 50% premium to Celgene's value before the deal, and 50% is just really, really large. So I spoke to a lot of people who said, look, if it were 25% or 30% the premium, then this would probably be a slam dunk. But that number, that numeral 50, might lead the likes of Glass-Lewis and ISS to say this is not the best use of shareholder capital. In any case, we'll find out what they think soon enough. Both ISS and Glass-Lewis have said they expect to make their final recommendations a few weeks before the April 12th shareholder vote. So that means these recommendations could come out any day now. So we usually talk about a mix of business and science on this podcast. The next segment is about something very different. It's the unthinkable grief experienced by parents following the sudden death of a newborn child. For some parents, the pain of that tragic loss can be compounded and prolonged by the investigation that follows, even when there is no evidence of wrongdoing. That's what happened to a Massachusetts couple named Holly and Eric High after the death of their four-month-old son, James. Holly and Eric held James in their arms until the medical examiner's van arrived. These last moments with their son were just the beginning of a long state investigation that gets triggered whenever an infant dies suddenly and unexpectedly. These protocols are designed to protect, but for the highs, the way officials carried out their investigation, delaying, for instance, an autopsy report for years, ended up exacerbating their pain and and deepening 
the isolation they felt. Stat reporter Eric Budman spent months speaking with Holly and Eric High and reporting on similar experiences of other parents. His emotional and gut-wrenching story was published this week in the digital pages of Stat, and he's here with us to talk about it. Eric, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Eric, tell us about the time you spent with the High family to report out this story. It was very hard to hear about everything that the Highs went through because they went from having a perfectly healthy, happy four-month-old to getting a phone call and hearing that he was gone. And the shock that's involved in that really made them wonder what happened and whether they missed something. And as they waited for investigation and waited and waited and waited to hear answers from the officials, that self-blame only deepened. And so it was an experience that was made even worse than it had to be, which is crazy, given that it's hard to imagine anything worse than losing a child in the first place. So, Eric, what exactly do researchers and doctors mean when they use that term SIDS, you know, short for Sudden Infant Death Syndrome? The term was coined in 1969 in part to reduce stigma and also to help researchers figure out which cases they should be focusing on. And it's kind of a blanket term for sudden infant deaths where a thorough investigation can't find an explanation. So there's a lot of gray in that definition. And ever since it's been coined about 50 years ago, there's been a lot of debate about what it actually means and when it should actually be applied. Medical examiners tend to be very loath to use it at all. And it's often confused with accidental suffocation and strangulation in bed and simply cause unknown. Right. It's almost kind of an anti-category, a bucket of, of things that we don't know what they are. Yeah. And I think a lot of researchers see it as a heterogeneous category. So we put these deaths in this category for now, but they really hope to break down what's actually going on and tease apart different true causes of death as opposed to just lumping them into this bucket, as you called it. So Eric, tell us more about the bureaucratic machinery that kicks in when a death like this occurs. A number of local and state agencies get involved as soon as this kind of death is reported. So that's the local police, the state police, the agency that's involved in checking for child abuse. If it happened at a daycare, the daycare licensing agency is involved. And everything sort of culminates in the coroner or medical examiner's investigation. And they're kind of the backstop where often the state police can't tell the parents anything until they have the final information from the medical examiner's office. And there are problems that can can crop up during this investigation, as you reported with the Hides. Can you tell us a little bit about their experience you know, during this investigative period following the death of their son? I should start by saying that these investigations happen for a reason, because there have been cases where infanticide and abuse have gone unprosecuted because people thought they were SIDS. That said, there are also cases where there, there's no evidence of wrongdoing, and these investigators sort of deepen parents' sense of self-blame by refusing to give them answers, refusing to even tell them when the answers might come, and often treating them with disdain over the phone when they call for information. Okay, so turning back to the High family, 
In your story, Eric, you wrote about the family's relationship with the director of a Boston Children's Hospital program that studies these unexpected deaths of children. How did this doctor figure into the story? So Dr. Richard Goldstein was the first person that Eric and Holly High were able to get in touch with who was both responsive, but who also might be able to help them figure out what happened in some way. And he sees these sudden unexpected deaths as a heterogeneous category, but he definitely finds patterns in his research, especially his research with the neuropathologist Dr. Hannah Kinney. And often he's able to say to parents, look, I can't tell you exactly what caused your child's death, but it seems like they have this pattern that other children have had and this under underlying biological abnormality that may have contributed. And I think that more scientific approach, as opposed to just saying, we don't really know what happened, really helps parents in their grief to feel like there wasn't anything that they could have known beforehand. Did the highs ever get an explanation, um, either from the state or from this doctor at Boston Children's Hospital, about what happened to their son? That's a great question. And It's not a simple answer because there really isn't a definitive explanation that they could have gotten now. The science just isn't there yet. And so through a partnership between Dr. Goldstein and the medical examiner's office, they actually met with the medical examiner in charge of James's case as well as Goldstein. And to the medical examiner, there was really nothing abnormal about James's case, but with sort of more fine-grained analysis, Goldstein's team found these mild abnormalities in James's brain that fit with a pattern both seen among other children who die suddenly and unexpectedly, but also in cases of temporal lobe epilepsy. And so there is a hypothesis that James may have had a seizure, but Goldstein can't say whether James died with this abnormality or of this abnormality. So, Eric, what's the reaction been like to your story? I've had a lot of parents writing in who've lost children, both to sudden unexpected infant death and to other things, just, you know, thanking STAT for actually talking about this, because I think part of the isolation that parents feel is that nobody really wants to or knows how to talk about child death. Well, Eric, it's, it's just a great story, and it's obviously a really important topic that needs to be written about. So thanks a lot for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And we should also note that Eric will host an online chat on Friday, April 5th at 11 a.m. Eastern Time about this case, as well as the thousands of other cases of babies who die each year suddenly and unexpectedly. Eric will be joined by two of the experts at the Boston Children's Hospital Program, And I think it'll be a great chat to learn more. If you're interested, um, you can register on STAT's website. Next up, we're going to talk about an unforeseen challenge that many digital health startups are facing. What to do when patients use their platforms to express that they're feeling suicidal. So for some context, in the past few years, Silicon Valley has generated tons of new digital apps designed to change the way that patients get care for conditions both acute and chronic. So that means offering patients video conferencing, phone calls, and texting with physicians and health coaches. And sometimes there's not even a human on the other side, such as with chatbots that offer up likely explanations for patients' medical complaints. 
So these apps are designed to help you manage your hypertension or, or tell you why you might have a headache. But in practice, many patients are using them to voice suicidal thoughts or behaviors. So as Rebecca reports in a new story, these apps weren't designed for this kind of care, and that's leaving digital health companies scrambling to figure out what to do. So Rebecca, what did you learn about how companies are responding to these incidents? So the good news is that all the companies I talked to said they had a response plan in place to follow when this happens. And that looks different depending on the situation. So in lower risk situations, companies might get patients on the phone, direct them to a crisis hotline or local resources, or encourage them to talk to a friend. Then there are the higher risk situations. And in those cases, some companies say they don't hesitate to get first responders involved. So calling 911, calling paramedics, calling emergency medical services. And the idea is to conduct a wellness check on these patients, in some cases, whether or not they want it. And I should note as well that it's not just suicidal threats that these companies are dealing with. When I was reporting out this story, I heard anecdotes about domestic violence and homicidal threats coming up during these sort of digital health visits. So on the suicidal threats, though, what is the scale that we're talking about? Like, how often is this happening on these apps? So I should be clear, you know, suicidal patients represent a very small fraction of the total number of cases that these digital health companies see. One company, though, did give me some hard numbers, um, and that's a company called Ada Health, which built a chatbot to provide smartphone users with possible explanations for their medical complaints. And in the last two and a half years, people around the world have used it to complete more than 10 million health assessments. And in about 130,000 of those cases, users have said that they're struggling with suicidal thoughts or behaviors. Rebecca, what does the research say about what these companies should be doing to best help these patients? So that's a challenging question because there is not good research. Um, Even suicide prevention experts don't have good answers about sort of the best way to respond and, and in which cases to call the police. The uh, the studies just haven't been done. And so what experts I talked to said is, is that they want to see these companies conduct research and evaluate their own practices to see what works and, and see what doesn't work. So this phenomenon of, of tech kind of grappling with suicidality among users, it's not unique to digital health apps, right? Yeah, definitely. And I was really struck by sort of the magnitude um, and the broad reach of this challenge. You know, Facebook has been dealing with this problem of sort of what to do, when to call first responders, when its users um, voice suicidal thoughts on its platform. Um, hospitals and doctors' offices are dealing with this too. So, you know, when patients will um, voice suicidality on their social media accounts, you know, maybe in the Facebook comments or the, the Twitter responses, um, or patients will also, you know, sort of voice suicidal thoughts on the online portals, like the kind you might have at your doctor's office. There's also, I think, a, a drug development angle. Um, one reader of my story had mentioned that this is an issue that people who've been working in sort of developing digital tools for use in clinical trials have been seeing for, for years um, that, you know, sort of patients that might be enrolled in a clinical trial for something totally unrelated to mental health or suicidality are voicing these thoughts on these portals anyway. So it's such a broad ranging challenge. And I think, uh, as I learned from my reporting, one that doesn't have a lot of easy answers yet. 
So, Rebecca, when I was reading your story, it, it called to mind um, a story I had read a few days earlier that, that I know got a lot of attention on the internet in the New York Times um, by the reporter Nellie Bowles. It zoomed in on a Silicon Valley startup called CareCoach, which relies on overseas workers to operate avatars on tablets to talk to and support patients. And the CEO of that company was quoted saying that they had just stopped a suicide using an avatar trained to ask patients if they have a plan to kill themselves. And so I guess I'm wondering, does that broader premise kind of apply to what you reported on, Rebecca? Like the the sort of old-fashioned way of dealing with suicidality, which which would presumably involve talking to a physical human being who is an expert, will that become something that is only affordable to those who can also afford servants, and then those of us who cannot will be left with these apps that might have problematic applications? That's a fascinating question, and I think it's one worth uh, quite a bit of reporting. So thank you for the story idea. I think it's certainly a possibility that we may see, um, you know, sort of these less direct human contact tools, you know, come up in cases where where patients don't have access, where this is sort of the best kind of care they can get. And and so I think there are a lot of questions about how well they'll be able to serve their needs and and sort of the benefits and and trade-offs in these different kinds of care. All right, Rebecca, Damien, let's wrap this uh, podcast up with another edition of the Lightning Round. And I think we'll start off with talking about the biotech IPO market in the first three months of 2019. Damien, what does it look like? So far, I feel like it'd be fair to say it's going well enough. Uh, You might recall last year ended with a trough for biotech valuations and a relative evaporation of IPOs as a result. Things have been looking better in 2019, and the handful of companies that have pulled off IPOs are, at the median, trading upward. And Rebecca, uh, I think we should note here that there are some looming digital health IPOs, right? That's right. So there's been a long IPO drought um, since October 2016. No U.S. companies have uh, gone public in the sector. Uh, But there are a few on the horizon, uh, Livongo and Health Catalyst, two sort of West Coast adjacent companies working in digital health, are planning to go public uh, later this year, according to some reporting I've seen. And I think there'll be an interesting test case for this sort of new generation of digital health companies um, backed by lots of venture money and lots of excitement. I can't believe that company's called Livongo. It just like it sounds it sounds like a mobile carrier in a foreign country. <laughs> Next up, let's talk about Vasipa. So that's a fish oil derived drug sold by the company Amarin that was shown in a large and much discussed study to have the ability to reduce cardiovascular problems such as heart attacks and strokes when compared to placebo. What is the latest on the Vasipa front? Right. So this week, the American Diabetes Association added Vasipa to its treatment guidelines, which is definitely not bad news. It's good news. It's not as big a deal as if the American College of Cardiology had embraced the drug. But an interesting thing about Vasipa and about Amarin, the company that makes it, is that every little tidbit of news turns into some like warlike thing on the internet. So Adam, person who spends probably too much time on the internet, what was your take on how this all played out? I definitely spend too much time on the internet. That is true. Yeah. So, you know, these treatment guidelines are important, right? Because as the name suggests, these are the guidelines or the recommendations that these large groups like the American Diabetes Association send out. Their doctors are supposed to follow these guidelines. So again, adding FACIPA to the treatment guidelines for diabetics would 
presumably logically lead to more doctors prescribing it. That's good for Amrin. Um, I was sort of accused of not being positive enough on Twitter when I mentioned this the other day. Um, and that sort of goes to this whole kind of crazy retail cult that is built up around uh, around the stock. You know, like you mentioned, this is a cardiovascular drug. Um, and so ultimately the the big prize here will be having changes made to the treatment guidelines that cardiologists follow that would expand the, the use of placebo uh, into larger groups of patients that are treated by cardiologists. That is something that will could happen in the future. Hasn't happened yet. So we'll see what happens. So, Damien, our colleague Nick Florco, while he's sort of patrolling the halls of Congress uh, down in D.C., uh, has a new story about the, uh, kind of a, or I guess, a new breed of CRISPR lobbyists. Yeah, I thought it was really fascinating. Nick made a, a very reasonable observation, which is that, you know, after the CRISPR baby scandal of, of late last year, there was huge, like, rending of garments and gnashing of teeth around the world in various regulatory bodies. But the United States Congress didn't even hold a hearing, let alone propose legislation that might curtail scientific research. And it turns out there is an arguable reason for that, which is that there are people on the Hill lobbying for genome editing. Yeah, it's very interesting. I think there are sort of two conceptual categories of lobbyists, the kind who want their issue or their client's issue to get more attention and the kind that want their issue or their client's issue to get less attention. And I think CRISPR lobbyists fall firmly in the second category. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the the fact that we don't have clips of I don't know, Senator Orrin Hatch woefully mispronouncing some genetic mutation is arguably a testament to the success that these people have had of just kind of educating lawmakers behind the scenes such that none of them were frightened into summoning uh, CEOs of companies to, to Washington. Although the inevitable CRISPR hearings are going to be pretty interesting. <laughs> That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Matthew Orr, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a reminder that we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, your recommendations for how much time Adam should spend on the internet. You can do all of that by sending an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do... Leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. We'll be back next week. I'm sorry, I was going to say something funny about being on the internet, but now forget it. (laughs) (laughs) See you next week.